Uh, tonight, we are looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, we're talking about Paul's relationship to the Gentiles changed after having come to Christ. Uh, Paul is in prison as a result of his ministry to the Gentiles, which flows out of Paul's commitment to Christ. Last week, we, uh, well, actually, I guess it was two weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, where it was talking about the unity that exists between Jew and Gentile and how hostility had been uh, done away with and that God had brought together the two to form one new man. Tonight we see that practically outworked in the life of Paul, how Paul's relationship to the Jewish people changed. So in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, it reads, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul's imprisonment is in keeping with what Paul had just taught on the unity of Jews and Gentiles found in Christ. So in Ephesians 3, 1, it says, For this reason... Now, many of the commentators have pointed out that in verse 14, we have this repeated, this reason. And so they view it as kind of an excursus. Paul was going to begin talking about his uh, prayer for the Ephesians, and then he kind of goes off into a tangent, and then he comes back to the prayer in verse 14. Well, I, I think there's a measure of truth to that, but, but only a small measure. Uh, I don't think this is a tangent, but rather as flowing out of the uh, material that just came and an explanation of why Paul prays for them in the way that he does. So I still think it's foundational to the argument that it was just given in chapter 2. Uh, and so uh, Max Anders uh, in uh, the Holman New Testament commentary says this, this reason is found in chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, Jews and Gentiles had been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ abolished the barrier between Jew and Gentile, and they are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the theme tonight is Paul seeks to encourage the Ephesians as they reflect upon Paul's imprisonment. Uh, that might not actually be the theme of these verses, but it certainly is an application that flows, flows from them. And you'll know what I'm talking about as I unpack this. So let's look at Roman numeral number one. Paul describes his present condition. Paul is in prison as a result of his ministry to the Gentiles, which flows out of Paul's commitment to Christ. Paul views himself with a new identity. For it tells us in verse one that it says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul's name change is significant. Of course, Paul was known as Saul, but eventually he comes to be known as Paul. Paul was formerly Saul. The name Paul is the Greek equivalent to Saul. So he took upon himself this Greek name to identify himself, this Jewish person who was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He takes great pride in his Jewish heritage, but yet in the New Testament he is constantly referred to and identifies himself as Paul, as Paul, as Paul, as this Gentile name. Uh, he identifies with the Gentile people, and 
he wants them to identify with him. B, Paul views himself as a prisoner of Christ. Ephesians 3.1, I, Paul, a, a prisoner of Christ. The significance is that Paul views himself not merely as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, but a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in, in Philippians, uh, he refers to himself as being arrested. Uh, and it's uh, talking about what Christ did on the road to Damascus, that, that he arrested Paul, that, that uh, he brought Paul to an end of himself. And so he views himself not just a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ. It was Christ that had sent Paul to Rome as a prisoner, Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So it is God who is sending uh, Paul to Rome. And three, later in Ephesians, Paul uses his imprisonment as a ground for exhortation to the Ephesians to live their lives in a manner which is consistent with God's purpose in saving them. For he says in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, same terminology that he's using in our verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So Paul uses his own experience to be a motivation for the Ephesians that as he is walking consistently with the calling that God had given to him, so too they were to walk consistently in the calling that God had extended to them. Still later, Paul requests that they pray for uh, Paul, uh, requests that that their prayer for Paul to boldly preach the gospel while he is still a prisoner. Ephesians 6, 19 through 21. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am, and now this term, an ambassador in chains. And an ambassador is a representative. Uh, an ambassador, ambassador is an individual that has the responsibility of representing a power before a foreign nation or people. So here he is, an ambassador in chains. That these chains that are ultimately the chains not of Rome, but of Christ, have bound him so that he is an ambassador, he's a representative of Jesus Christ. C, Paul views himself as imprisoned for championing the Gentiles. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. He is there for their benefit. The reason that he is there is because he's identified with the Gentiles. And again, we'll unpack these things. But he's saying, I'm a prisoner, and the reason I'm a prisoner is for your sake. Uh, That's how committed he is to the Gentile people. Two, Paul had a divine responsibility to share the gospel of Christ. Paul had a responsibility that was born out of God's grace. Number one, Paul was given responsibility due to the grace of God, which he had received. 
In Ephesians 3, 2, it says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. A stewardship. A stewardship is oversight. A stewardship is, is a responsibility. It's a person who is placed in charge of a treasure, if you will, a, a, a valuable object. And what he has been placed in charge over is God's grace. He is a dispenser of the grace of God. The very same grace that he had received, now he becomes a dispenser of. He has a responsibility of this grace that has been entrusted to him. Two, Paul had been privileged to have truth revealed to him in verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. How, how God had directly spoken to the Apostle Paul. Uh, certainly Christ met him on the road to Damascus, but, Christ, but Paul had many other visions. And he had an understanding by God's revelation. Number three, the mystery that had been revealed to Paul was to be shared with the Gentiles. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Given to me for you. So Paul was not to be an end user of this grace. Paul was not to be an end user of the revelation that God had shared with him. This wasn't just so that Paul could be puffed up. This wasn't just for Paul's own personal benefit. But he was given this grace and he was given this revelation for the very purpose of sharing it with the Gentile people. That that was God's intent of making this revelation known to Paul. So you can see the responsibility that he has. Secondly, Paul was granted a unique understanding of the gospel of Christ. Paul was granted insight into God's word that was almost unequaled. Ephesians 3, 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. This, this insight, this depth of understanding. The way in which he can unfold this wonderful gospel truth. Secondly, Paul had a deeper understanding of the gospel that was not fully known as it is now, Ephesians 3, 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now let me just pause here and say there have been myriads of pages written on this one verse and it has become a great divide in Christendom as to how you're to understand verse, verse 5. And it doesn't need to be divisive at all, but unfortunately has come to be that. And uh, it depends on how you understand it and how far you take your understanding. All right? One view says that this, uh, this revelation, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, 
as it has now been revealed, takes this to be in an absolute sense. That what Paul is going to speak of that other generations had no knowledge of whatsoever. The other is to take it in a comparative sense when it says, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed, uh, understands it, that this is much more clear now than it was in ancient times and to other generations. Uh, I fall into this latter group that understands this more in a comparative sense. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get on, into all the intricacies of that, or it would take us not only tonight, but weeks. But I understand this comparative sense, and we'll see that as we work through this. Three, however, Paul was not the sole receiver of this truth. For it says in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So these apostles and, and prophets have this great, great truth of God's word. Uh, I would understand those prophets to be both Old and New Testament uh, prophets, uh, and uh, they have this, this truth revealed. See, Paul declares the nature of the mystery that has been revealed. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, one thing is very, very clear in the Old Testament, and that is that Jews and, and Gentiles would come together, and that the uh, Gentiles would be considered the people of God. There are just so many passages uh, that depict that. One of the most famous is in the book of Hosea, uh, where uh, it says, Lo uh, me, which means not my people in Hebrew, uh, shall be called my people. That's quoted in uh, Romans chapter 9 is referring to the Gentile believers. Uh, the whole aspect of circumcision, etc., that we looked at in the past, the very fact that the book of Romans is filled with Old Testament citations. So it isn't new that the idea would be present that the Gentiles would be a part of the people of God. But the part that, and the very limited part, that does come across as a pretty new insight is that they would form a new body, that, th that there would be a change in relationship with the Jewish people, as especially as it's associated with the rites and the, the ceremonies uh, and uh, the offerings, etc. Now, again, not in an absolute sense. For the Old Testament predicts a time in which the temple is going to be destroyed. It depicts a time in which there's no, going to be no ephod. But it certainly wasn't understood in the way in which it's clearly revealed in the New Testament. How there's going to be such an incredible change in, in Judaism. That took most of the Jews by storm. And that's one of the reasons they found it so difficult to give up the idea of circumcision. And they wanted to continue to practice circumcision. Uh, but that was to change. That was, that was going to be different. And that is, again, uh, certainly hinted at, but is not clearly known as it is when you get to the New Testament. Three, 
Paul had been made a servant of the gospel, Ephesians 3, 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. So he, he's a servant of it. A, Paul was granted this privilege, though he was unworthy. Uh, Ephesians 3, 8, though I am the very least of all saints. And when he talks about being the least of all saints, uh, I believe that he's talking about, and when he talks about his unworthiness, is the fact of Genesis, excuse me, Galatians 1, 13. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Uh, Paul was responsible for the death of many believers. And we're told in the book of Acts that he's standing present at the time in which Stephen is condemned and he's holding Stephen's garments. Uh, Paul had been a, a fierce persecutor of those that had placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to think now that having actually killed the people for their adherence to the gospel, that Paul would be made a minister of that gospel, to him is mind-boggling. And it really should be to us as well. Uh, when, when you think of God's grace, and it's one of those areas that it's so easy to gloss over, but, but imagine, imagine God choosing to use an individual that had been so actively engaged in the persecution of the church. The people died. That means, that means that when Paul was preaching the gospel, there were people there who heard him whose father, brother, sister had died at his hands. Can you imagine how difficult that would be to swallow? Can you also understand how one might really wonder about the sincerity of that change? In fact, you know, Barnabas is the one who's willing to take people to the Apostle Paul when other people were wondering whether or not he was really genuine or it was a ruse when he talked about his conversion experience. So it, it really is a, a testimony to the grace of God who can and does forgive all sins. Uh, and Paul talks about being the least of all the saints. Elsewhere he talks about being the least of the apostles, but it's here the least of all the saints. That he views himself as totally unworthy. B, the grace was given to Paul in order to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Ephesians 3.8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. To preach to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were Paul's target group. They were the people to whom he was sent. He was not sent to the Jews. He was sent to the Gentiles. Galatians 1.14 through 16. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So again, this was Paul's target group. That's 
the one to whom God had sent them. Now you understand why he talks about for their sake that he is a prisoner. See, Paul was to preach the inexhaustible riches of Christ's grace. Ephesians 3.8, where it says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of his grace. The unsearchable riches. Uh, meaning that one cannot get to the, to the depth of the riches of Christ. You cannot exhaust the riches of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, to him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Uh, same thought here. These riches of grace, the riches of Christ, the fact that his grace cannot be exhausted. You cannot, you cannot out the grace of God. Ephesians 1.9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. Paul is to bring to light what was previously hidden and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Notice this plan is not new, but it was hidden for ages in God. But that, that word to be hidden speaks of its presence, its presence. For it goes on to say, uh, and to bring to light for everyone is the plan of the mystery of hidden for ages in God. If you look down at uh, under four, A, this was according to the eternal purpose. So this isn't, this isn't new. This is, this is the eternal purpose of God. This is God starting over. This is God doing something different, Old Testament, New Testament. This is God lifting the veil. God allowing greater insight, greater understanding, a depth of the gospel of which other generations didn't have the same complete Understanding, They knew of a coming Christ. They knew that he would be a sacrifice. But all that Christ did, they, 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 they didn't really, really understand it completely. And so we find in E, even angels in heaven will have a greater understanding of God's grace. Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. First Peter puts it this way, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. But notice what that says. It's very important. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. So they did speak of it. searched and inquired carefully. They wanted to know more about this great grace that was going to come through Christ. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit in Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So they did know about Christ's sufferings, Isaiah chapter 53, 
That's very clear uh, about the sufferings of Christ. But they didn't understand it fully. Or the subsequent glories, all that that was going to achieve. All right? And, and so they desired to know those things for more fully. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. So they knew that this was a future event. And they understood that it had ramifications for the Gentiles. They understood that. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things into which the angels long to look. And I personally believe that there is a, uh, a wonderful symbol of that in the Old Testament. If uh, you remember the, uh, in the most holy place, uh, there was, well, the, the, uh, the tabernacle was divided into two areas. There was the holy place outside, which was the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the, the candelabras. And then there was the most holy place which contained the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, the only one that was ever allowed to go into the most holy place was the high priest. And he could only go in one day a year. It was the Day of Atonement. And he went into the holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of the, the altar, uh, of the brazen altar when the uh, animal was slain and take that blood and take it into the most holy place and it was placed on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a rectangular box because it, it contained the uh, 12 commandments, the 10 commandments, yeah, 12 commandments, the 10 commandments. Yeah, I know my Bible. All right, uh, so uh, it, it contained the, uh, the 10 commandments and there was a lid of that which uh, that lid was covered and there were two angels on either end of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. So if you can think of this rectangular box and there is an angel on one side with its wings outstretched and head looking down, and on the other side, another angel with wings outstretched and head looking down. As they were looking down into, although it was covered, they were looking down into the Ark of the Covenant. And the word propitiation in, in Greek, in the New Testament, where Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, that word propitiation is literally the word for mercy seat. The mercy seat is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where the blood of the sacrifice was applied. The New Testament says that Jesus is our propitiation. Jesus is the mercy seat. Jesus is the place where God's wrath and God's grace meets. It is through his shed blood. But we have this, this picture of the seraphim looking down, wanting to understand that more clearly, 
wanting to understand that more deeply. What a beautiful image of that which God is going to fully reveal in the New Testament. Raise the veil and allow us to understand it in such a greater and complete way. And I I think it, it gives us better insight to what happens that, that incredible night on a hillside in which Christ was born. And there were shepherds in the country keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, an angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. I think at that moment, heaven erupted. There was an understanding among the heavenly host of an incredible event that had just taken pass, that the Son of God came into this world and was born as a child to take away the sins of those who place their faith and trust in him. It was glory in the heavenlies. There was a greater awareness, a greater understanding of this incredible, incredible truth. And, you know, the scripture says that, you know, now we look into a glass darkly, but then face to face. As much as we know now, it's going to pale to what we will know when we stand before him. What an incredible moment that will be when we really understand the grace of God, what he has done for us, when our eyes are opened to that truth. So Paul has been given a glimpse of that which for generations prophets and angels long to understand. Number four, God's plan for the Jew and Gentile was not a new plan. God's plan for Jew and Gentile was God's purpose all along. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not an afterthought. B, once again, this plan resulted in the complete and free access of believers in the person and work of Lord Jesus Christ to God, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We talked about that <clears throat> in chapter 2, the veil of the temple being rent, etc. See, since Paul's imprisonment was due to the eternal plan of God, the Ephesians should not be discouraged by Paul's imprisonment. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. So all of this to say, This isn't a failure that I'm in prison. This isn't bad news. 
When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, that these things have happened unto me under the furtherance of the gospel. This is the same kind of thought, but here Paul is saying, I don't want you to miss that I'm in prison because of the wonderful gospel that has been given to me so that you would be able to know it. That's why I'm in prison. That's why I'm in prison. So this is not something to lose heart over. This is something to glorify God for. This is something for which praise and thanks should be given, which then moves Paul to pray and offer that prayer of thanks and looking for the word of God to work and move, and we'll see that next time. D, rather than be discouraged, they should see how wonderful it is that Paul would be in prison for their sake. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, application. Paul is a tremendous example of how, through coming to Christ, hostility between Jew and Gentile can come to an end. Let me read again from Galatians chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Then jumping to verse 22, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. The only we're hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul in chapter 1, gave us the theological understanding of how people change, how their thoughts, how their attitudes change, how sin can be dealt with, and there can be a transformation of heart and mind. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins can be made alive. And I emphasize that being made alive is the totally opposite of being dead and all that that being dead carried with it. When Paul was made alive, he was transformed. He went from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of the gospel. He went from a Judaizer to a person who's willing to sit in prison for Gentiles. He changed completely. See, however, not everyone lives consistently with the knowledge that they have received from the Lord. Paul is a tremendous example of how he assimilated, how, how he received and acted upon the truth of God's word. So let me give you a contrast in Peter. And I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture. Most of you probably know this story well, but just in case, I, I, I want to read a lengthy portion of scripture. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, these are men that are coming from Cornelius. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted to eat, but they, while they were preparing it, fell into a trance. 
and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being led down by the four corners upon the earth. <clears throat> In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them uh, together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted up his saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with them, he went and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This vision of the sheet. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come now. Come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, meaning Jew and Gentile. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are his witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him, and he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judged of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And again, all the prophets bear witness to that, Old Testament, New Testament. Wow, pretty dramatic change for Peter also. Number two, however... Peter fell back into his own ways for a period of time. 
because of the negative influence of others, Galatians chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, <laughs> that's Simon, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Circumcision party being the Jews that said you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. He was afraid of them. He was intimidated by them. He didn't want to be disassociated from them. He wanted to be accepted by them. And so he went along with them and would not eat with the Gentile believers for they were uncircumcised. Galatians 2.13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray with hypocrisy. Even Barnabas is caught up with this. Barnabas was the man that was sent to the Gentiles in Antioch. Barnabas was the one who recruited, recruited Paul. To think that Barnabas would get caught up with this, not willing to eat with the Gentiles. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, when I saw that what they were doing was inconsistent with what the gospel said, I said to Cephas before them all, Paul didn't approach him on the QT. Paul didn't say, Simon, come over here. I need to talk to you for a moment. But he dressed them down publicly. Why? Because they were all getting carried away with this. Barnabas, these party of the circumcision. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. What am I saying to you? What I'm saying to you is sometimes, sometimes, it can be hard to live consistently with what we know to be true. There can be a world of difference between what we understand and how we live, especially when our friends, our loved ones, people that we respect differ. And we're afraid that we're going to lose their approval. Many times, wanting the approval of others is more important than the truth of the gospel. It wasn't for Paul. He was willing to go to prison for the truth of the gospel. Paul said, the reason I'm in prison is because of you Gentiles. If he wouldn't have championed the Gentiles, if he wouldn't have stood up for them, the Jews wouldn't have put him in prison. 
But he wouldn't back down. He wouldn't quit. He wouldn't relinquish. Why? Because God gave him a stewardship. Because God had saved him wonderfully, wonderfully, and forgave him his sins, and gave him the stewardship of the grace of God, and gave him great insight to understand the Old Testament in a way that even though he sat under the feet of Gamaliel, did not understand it until God opened his eyes and gave him this revelation of, of greater and deeper truth. And Paul realized he had a burning responsibility and desire to share this great news with the very people that God intended it to be shared with. The reason that God made that known to him was so that he could share it with the Gentiles. And so he did. And so he did. Well, what I'm saying to you is we're, we're moving into soon the application section of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 2, or 3 is the doctrine. 4, 5, and 6 is the application. But as, as you think about this whole aspect of oneness in Christ, oneness in Christ, what a beautiful concept. But it's hard, it's, it's hard to maintain. Conclusion, A, theological truths must be worked out in practice. B, the peace and unity that God establishes through the gospel must be appropriated and applied. We need to take the gospel to every people group, every ethnic group, group, rich, poor, you name it. And we have to accept them and we have to welcome them. We have to make them feel at home. I uh, one time went on vacation to a very little church, had about 20 people there, and the pastor was trying to be welcoming, and my family was there, the, the five of us, and so we were about a quarter of the people in attendance. And he said to me, he said, uh, are you a brother? And I said, yes, I know the Lord Jesus is my Savior. And he said, that's wonderful, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from near Hershey, Pennsylvania. And he said, oh, you're a Yankee. And I said, yes. And then he said to the congregation, he said, I want you to know there's nobody who hates Yankees more than I do. But we have to welcome him. Somehow he didn't quite get it. You know, some, some, I, I'm thankful that he's willing to take a stand with the, the people and say, you know, we have to welcome the Yankees. But probably saying that no one hates them more uh, somehow it doesn't quite measure up. We have to be really careful. 
in the language which we use, in the way we talk about peoples of other colors and places around the world, that we really are willing to stand on the truth of the gospel. And that is that God welcomes everyone who turns to him in faith. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we should long for the salvation of everyone. No matter where they're from, no matter what they have done. And even as the people had to accept the Apostle Paul, may we be willing to accept in our midst anyone who has truly placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But may we be up to it by God's grace. Let's pray. Our Father, help us, help us to live out what we know to be true. Lord, so often it is that our baggage, our traditions, our upbringings, our friendships, our families can hinder our allegiance to the gospel, our allegiance to what we know to be true. And sometimes we're not willing to take stands where we need to take stands. Help us, oh God. Help us that we would not be like Peter, but that we'd be like Paul. Thank you that Peter received that rebuke. Thank you that Peter learned those lessons. Thank you that Peter demonstrated a life much like that of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for what you did in Peter's life. And Lord, we pray that you would do that in our life and that you would conform us more to the image of the Lord Jesus, being entrusted with a, a rich, rich grace. And may we not keep it to ourselves, but share it with others. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.